everyone. Welcome to the Revolution Podcast. We're the high school ministry at the church at Rocky Peak, and we'd love for you to join us in person on Saturday nights at 530. For more info about the ministry and upcoming events, find us on Instagram at HSRevolution. We hope you enjoy this time of teaching from God's Word. It's nice to be here with you. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm our high school pastor. I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, I, man, JC, it warms my heart to hear you yelling that you love me. Um, like, all I can think about is, like, anyone who listens on the podcast, just hearing me, like, pause and stutter and be like, mm, thank you. And they have no idea what was said. Uh, I'm so glad that you guys are here. I'm excited to jump into our time in the Word today. Let me pray, and we will dive in. Jesus, I, I thank you for your plan for this evening. Um, and I fully, completely acknowledge it, that it might be a different plan than any of us who are in this room. It might be different than what my plan is. It might be different than those of us who, who walked in today. And we pray and we ask God that, that your will would happen, that what you want us to take from your word, that that's what we would walk out of here with. I pray that our hearts would be open to you, that our minds would be open, that you would change us and shape us uh, to see the world and to see ourselves the way that you do and to define ourselves and define the way that we should live uh, built on you as our foundation. We ask this in your name. Amen. Awesome. Okay, so we are in this series right now that we're calling Start Here. And one of the things that we're talking about is that, that our starting point matters. Uh, I've talked uh, with you guys about this before. I don't remember how recently I talked about this, but um, back when I got my driver's license, how many of you have your driver's license in here? Oh man, the sense of freedom. I remember when I, when I got my driver's license, the, uh, the very first place, like I, I had the first opportunity I had ever had to drive myself alone for the first time. Those of you who with a license, you know, you know what that's like. The first time you get in the car and you're like, I get to drive by myself. I don't have someone sitting next to me yelling. If there was a car there, you would have hit it. Um, I had to go somewhere. So I, I had the opportunity. I had nowhere to go. And so I drove myself to Target because that's all there was. I was like, I might as well go. I mean, I'll go, I'll get a Slurpee and poke around the video game section or something. And Target is great. It's like in real life, Amazon, you can go and buy whatever you want there. Uh, and so now maybe let's imagine, let's imagine a, a scenario where you're a brand new driver, right? For some of you, you're past this. Some of you, you're not quite there yet. When you're a new driver, a lot of times you're still kind of learning your way around. Now, oftentimes we have, we have GPS now to help us get where we're going, but let's just assume that for some reason your GPS isn't working. You drove to Target and you call me and you're like, Tim, I am at Target, in see me, I'm lost, GPS isn't working, I'm too embarrassed to call my parents, help me, if you can help me get to the freeway, I can get home. Give me directions to the freeway. And I'm like, okay, so you're, you're at Target, and see me, and you're like, yeah, I'm at Target, and see me. I'm like, okay, awesome. Go, go out the, go out the, uh, the parking lot, turn left, take your next left, drive all the way up, and you'll hit the freeway, you'll be good to go. Those of you who live in see me, what's one problem with the scenario? That in see me, there are Two targets. There are two targets in Simi. I give you directions. If you were on the one off of Madeira, you would make your way all the way up to the 118. If you were at the other target, the one off of Sycamore, what I like to affectionately think of as my target, you would be in some random neighborhood somewhere, much more lost than you were before, and you would be hopelessly, hopelessly lost. Uh, where you start matters. Having 
confusion about which target you're at when you're getting directions is going to change where you end up. When we're looking at the big things of life and we're trying to understand the world around us, the place that we start from to understand the world is going to impact where we end up and the types of answers that we get to some of life's biggest questions. And so that's a lot of what we're talking about in this series. Uh, we, we talked about in week one that how as followers of Jesus, that because he's radically changed our life, because he came and he died for, for my sin, for the wrong things that I had done, every single thing that I had done against God, he put that to death on the cross. He paid for it. He rose from the dead and I have power to live a new life in him that because he's done that for me and I've received forgiveness from him, that he is now my new foundation. He is my starting point. He's the place that I define the world based off of because of what he's done in my life. Because now he is my savior and my king. He is my starting point. He's where I start from. And it makes a big difference in the types of things we looked at. Last week, we looked at the problem of evil in the world and how our understanding of how to understand evil and what's going on, that it changes when we start from the point of Jesus. When we take a look at, at him as our, as our number one, our firm foundation that we start from, the one thing that is true is that he loves me and has given his life for me. When we start there, it impacts how we see the world around us. And so tonight, we're going to look at another huge area that many in our culture come to extremely different conclusions on than the Bible. Tonight, we're talking about understanding biblical sexuality, understanding the Bible's view on sex, which if we were to define it super quickly, we would, if we were to take all of the Bible and boil it down to how does the Bible see sex, we would walk away with an understanding that it was created by God and it was created good, it was created for use only in a committed, loving marriage between one man and one woman. That it was created for having kids and also for tightening the bond between the married couple. Now, we've done messages on that before where we've combed through the things that the Bible says and we've looked at different examples and we've talked about how just because that's, that's what the, the Bible's ideal is, that's not every example in the Bible, that we have all sorts of examples of broken people like us who approach that area in broken ways. Uh, and we've talked about God's forgiveness in those areas where we have broken that ourselves. Uh, and if, there, if you would like to, after this, talk about where in the Bible we pull some of that from, I would love to unpack that afterwards. But when we look at our culture and our culture's understanding of what the Bible says, this is pretty much what the cult our culture thinks the Bible says. When we look at the Bible and what the Bible says, this is what the, the Bible says, is that God created sex to be in a committed, loving marriage between one man and one woman, which limits a whole lot of other options. Right? When people in our modern culture hear this, the reaction can be pretty extreme. You can give people everything from, oh, that's backwards, outdated, stuffy, restricting, to, hey, that's bigoted, and that's vile, and that's evil. Meanwhile, the church, through generations, if you were to go back hundreds of years you would see the church celebrating God's plan for sex and enforcing God's limits within that community of believers. That there would be 
consistent teaching that there would be no sex outside of marriage, whether that's before marriage or adultery and cheating, that there would be no same-sex relationships, that there would be no multiple partner marriages, that there would be no taking advantage of someone else through sex. And a couple of those things our culture would agree with, but a majority of those limits our culture would hate. And Many of us in this room, if we were completely and totally honest, if we got to sit down one-on-one and we knew that what we said in that moment was going to stay in that moment, we might be honest and say that, that we have trouble sometimes disagreeing with our culture, that we know what the Bible says, and we've also heard the arguments from our culture, and we have trouble lining up with the Bible, that the culture's viewpoint sounds really compelling. Maybe we're even asking, if God wants me to be happy, why would he place limits on sex? And so why do we see it so differently than the world around us? Or why do we have trouble maybe secretly thinking that they're right? And today we're going to talk about how the the major difference, the biggest difference, is because of our starting points. Because of the things deep down that we believe about how the world works, that radically changes where we end up on questions like, what is the the proper use of sex? What is sex supposed to be used for? And what does a healthy relationship with that look like? What should our expectations be? And so today, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to unpack five different things that our culture believes. And as as we go through, you'll see that these are all kind of stacked on each other. They flow from the main point. We're going to do it kind of quickly uh, because otherwise we'll be here forever. But the first one is this. So you have a section on your note sheet that says culture's starting point. Hopefully, the plan is that we're going to fly right through these. We'll see how that goes. The first starting point is this, that the fullest human life is a happy life. Our culture, if you were to ask what the best life for a human being would be, most people would define it in some version of this, that the fullest human life is the happiest life possible. That you're living the best life when you're at your happiest. When you have the most pleasure widely defined. When you are happy, then you are whole. This is actually, there's a a name for this philosophy that most people who believe it don't know. But if you want to study more about the the thoughts that go back deep, deep into history on this viewpoint of the world, uh, the name for this kind of philosophy is is hedonism, which is just simply defined the, the ethical theory that pleasure is the highest good and proper aim of the human life. Or I found a, a quote uh, from a modern writer, a modern author, uh, Rita Mae Brown, uh, who would fully line up with a lot of things that our world says. She boils down uh, this idea to this, I thought, really just this is this viewpoint in a nutshell. She said, I finally figured out the only reason to be alive is to enjoy it. I finally figured out the only reason to be alive is to enjoy it. And when we look around at our world, we see a lot of people who are living either for momentary happiness, right now, happiness today, or maybe who are delaying good feelings now so that they can have more happiness in the future. And that could be happiness through money, happiness through fame, happiness through uh, just physical pleasure or chemical pleasure. But we look around us and people have their different ideas on what's going to bring them happiness. But by and large, 
all in our world. Southern California, the U.S., the Western world, people are living for happiness. And when they feel cut off from happy, happiness, they feel hopeless. To paraphrase a YouTuber I used to watch, life looks better from a jet ski, right? That's just, when you're at your happiest, life feels the best. That's a big part of what our culture believes, which leads to this main idea piece, which is that the best life a human can live is a life full of as much pleasure as possible. The second thing that's a part of our culture's starting point, their, their viewpoint is this, that the ultimate good in life is happiness. The ultimate good in life is happiness. That the best thing that you can have is happiness. The thing that we're all striving for is happiness. The thing that is tragic when it gets cut off is happiness. The thing that all other good things flow from is happiness and their relationship to happiness. It's the capital G good, the ultimate thing to live for. The third thing that our culture believes is this, is that sex and romance lead to happiness. Sex and romance lead to happiness, or in other words, sex and romance lead to the ultimate good. That sexual relationships are seen as a major path to happiness. And so because of that, sex is good because it makes people happy. That's a lot of the underlying belief in that. We see that in movies, in TV, in music, in our general attitudes towards dating and sex, that the reason that people pursue this is because it makes them feel good. And the reason I'm living is to chase those good feelings. As a consequence of that, a lot of times, the fourth villain is this. A lot of times, our, our culture sees singleness as hopelessness. That people who aren't in a relationship are living less of a human life because they're cut off from a major path of happiness. Instead, of, in, Unless for some reason that, that deep down, someone doesn't completely and totally desire that, that if you don't have a romantic partner, that there is this happiness that is being taken away from you, that's being denied you, and so then life is now hopeless. And then ultimately, where this comes down to the biggest conflict between the Bible's view that's built on Jesus and our world's view is this fifth thing that limits on sex limit human fulfillment. That limits on sex limit human fulfillment. That less sex equals less happy, equals less of the good, the most good, the best thing. Pleasure and happiness have become the modern foundation for how we see what it means to be human. What does it mean to lead the best human life? It's to live for those good moments. It's the pursuit of happiness being able to pursue it ourselves and removing limits for others to be able to have it too. The result is that we've moved ju removed just about every understanding of sex as a limited activity. Uh, as a, the value has really just become that we should actively remove as many limits as we can unless it's causing harm, really clear, obvious harm to someone else who didn't choose to be a part of that. 
That's where a lot of times the line gets drawn is because now that is limiting someone else's happiness. But as long as we can, we should, as often as we can, we should remove those limits so that there is not a barrier between someone and the ultimate good, which is to be happy. And when that's your starting point, the Bible's view on sex seems pretty terrible because there are a lot of limits in the Bible's view on sex. If your view is that happiness is the best thing, remove all limits to happiness that you reasonably can, and the Bible comes in with what feels like limits left and right. If happiness is the ultimate good, then the Bible's view of sex is evil because it's resulting in there being less good for those people. And that causes huge tensions in our culture. Because people are familiar with the quote-unquote traditional biblical view of sexuality. And it causes a lot of tension. And part of that is because many Christians assume that this is the automatic right position. Or the position that makes sense to them without even thinking about it. And so why does it make sense to other people without even thinking about it? And they, many argue for it without even understanding the why behind it. For some, it's simply, simply a matter of, well, the Bible says it. For others, it's because it reflects the created order of the universe. And for many, it's purely an act of obedience. And for some, it lines up with their own internal sense of morality. It feels right to them, and so they're going to go along with what the Bible has to say. But none of those are our foundation. None of those are what our viewpoint is built on. Even obedience isn't the starting point, but it flows out of the new perspective that Jesus gives us. So let's talk about what our foundation in Jesus really is. Let's talk about the difference that it makes and what he has to say. Because this is one of those areas that if we can't understand why the Bible would put limits in our life, we're either going to resent it or disregard it. But instead, we can see that there's so much more going on behind the scenes than just telling you, no, you can't have this thing that the world says is going to lead to unlimited happiness. The first one is this, that when we have Jesus as our starting point, we see that the fullest human life is a connected life. When I say connected life, I mean a life connected to the God of the universe through Jesus. Let's take a look at a couple of the things that the Bible has to say about the best kind of life that we can be living. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And then Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came so that you and I could have life. Not just life after we die, but a more full life now. Later in the same book, John 17, 3, it says this, Now this is eternal life, 
When the Bible talks about eternal life, a lot of times we think of eternal meaning timeless or what happens after I die that I'll keep on living. But what the word that the Bible uses there is not just for never ending, but it's also for this amazing depth of life, a life that is eternally meaningful and deep and full, a, a rich life along with a never ending life. Now this is eternal life that they know you, Jesus is talking to God, to the Father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That full life is found in knowing and being known by God and being in relationship with him. And then 1 John 5 says this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, full, deep life, and this life is in his Son, Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That this this is the life that we were designed for and was taken from us when we chose to live our own way. When we chose to rebel against God, we lost access to what we were designed for. A lot of times the way that I'll talk about it, right, is that you can imagine... Can you imagine like a really expensive like Ferrari race car style car? Anybody? Yeah? Or like a Lamborghini. Or yeah, Curtis is out there like cleaning cars all the time. Curtis has a detailing business. He's constantly inside of these cars. These cars are, they are tuned. They are low to the ground. They are designed for one thing and that's speed. Right? Speed on a nice, smooth racetrack. If you took that same, if you took that Ferrari, you took that Lamborghini and you went off-roading in it, you're going to have some serious problems. Right? Things are going to start coming apart. You're going to start, it's going to start sounding louder than like grandma's Toyota pickup truck. It's going, to, it's going to be just a mess after just a few minutes of off-roading in that thing. The same thing if you took an off-road truck that was designed to take bumps and hills and things and you threw it on a racetrack, it's just getting passed by everybody. It's getting smoked and it's not a pleasant experience. We understand that some things are designed for certain environments and that when you take those out of that environment, it might seem freeing to go off-roading in your Lamborghini, but it's going to be a lot less freeing when you have to pay those mechanical bills that a lot of times in life, there, there are things that we're designed for. We're designed for a relationship with God and we can exercise freedom and live life differently than we're designed, but things are going to start falling apart. But Jesus has made it possible for us to live a full life like we were designed to live, connected to the God of the universe, the source of all life. The idea here is that it's better to live out your design than to live chasing your desires. It's better to live out your design, who you were made to be than to go chasing your desires, chasing happiness, that the moment you get it, you wake up the next day and that happiness is gone and you have to chase again. The second thing we see when Jesus is our foundation, when he's the point that we start on, when we are trying to understand the world, the second thing we see is that the ultimate good is holiness. Now, holiness is kind of a weird, almost scary church word. Uh, The root just means separated. It's a word that describes God's otherness. That because he's the creator, the maker of everything, that when it comes to creator and creation, that there's an aspect to God where he is totally separate and different than all of us, that he is set apart, that he is holy. But what's interesting to see is that in the beginning, when God was creating, 
God designed us to be his reflection into this world, to be something that he called uh, his, his image bearers, to show the world what he was like, to reflect him. And then when we chose to sin, that image was broken, but not completely gone. But Jesus is restoring our ability to live reflecting God. Romans 8.29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined. In other words, God chose us to be in him, to be conformed to the image of his son. That Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 1 Peter 1 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it's written, Be holy because I'm holy. That God, who is separate, has invited us to be like him. To be able to reflect him. That he's invited us into a relationship where he's going to make us more like him. To love the things he loves. To care about the things he cares about. To respond in situations in ways that represent him. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As his kids, we look at what God does and then we reflect that back to the people around us. That because of Jesus' death on our behalf and his resurrection, we get to live out our original design, reflecting God's character into the world. That to live a full life is to be people who are reflecting God into a world that's looking for him and doesn't know it. Number three, that means that marriage gets redefined and marriage becomes an image-bearing activity. In other words, marriage becomes a reflection of who God is. In a passage that we're not going to look at right now because of time, in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul unpacks the marriage relationship and talks about it as, as how it reflects the love that Jesus has for his church. One of the things when I get to do weddings that I'll talk about uh, is, is how a couple who both love Jesus, they, they get to, by loving each other well and choosing to love each other even when the other person isn't maybe being so lovable, which does happen in every marriage, uh, that they get, to, they get to basically preach Jesus to all of us who are watching their relationship with ever, having, with, ever, with ever having to open their Bible. They get to illustrate the love that Jesus has for us by loving each other. And that's something the Bible makes clear that now marriage becomes about Jesus. Even the act of it becomes about reflecting him to this world. It also means, point four, that singleness, the way I have it in the notes that's going to pop up on the screen is that singleness is godly. It can also be that singleness has purpose or that singleness is good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's this passage where Paul talks about that those of you who are already single that you have a chance to live for God without the distractions of a relationship. And he says, but if you go and you get married, then now you have to balance your relationship with your husband or wife with serving God and living for God. And it can sound like one of those passages that gets pulled out every once in a while to tell people, it's okay 
if you haven't found a partner yet, life's going to be all right. Especially if we've taken our culture's story of, hey, romance is your most important path to fulfillment. You're going to need to chase that romance. Then this part of the Bible can sound a little bit like, it's okay if you don't have anyone yet, dear. I'm sure you'll be fine. But really, it offers us so much hope. What it means is that you don't need another person to have a full life. That you don't need another, you're not half of a person looking for your other half. That you're not crippled in being able to live for God until you find somebody. That you don't need another person to infuse value into your life. You don't need someone else to validate you and tell you that you're important. That God has a purpose for you. And I think this is incredibly important for a room of high school students because most of you are single. Now, most of you don't want to be single. Uh, and I get that. Some of you are happy to be, and that's fine. Uh, some of you will be single all the way through high school. Some of you will be single all the way through college. And some of you will be single the rest of your life. And some of you are in a relationship right now and need to know that it's okay to be single. Uh, but the Bible paints a picture that singleness isn't hopelessness and it doesn't need to be about waiting for the next relationship to come because your relationship is not your path to fulfillment. That romance is not the way that you're going to have happiness and have the best life. That it's in Jesus and living for him and being connected to him that we're able to be fulfilled people living meaningful lives. You can live a meaningful life and never be married or die never having had sex and still live a life that is not sad or tragic or empty, but full of meaning and purpose. And it's something that's deep in the Bible, that's there, that because we live in the world that we do, because we've absorbed what our culture believes, so often we just gloss right over it. And so I want to highlight that especially here. That when Jesus is our foundation and he's our starting point, we don't need a relationship in order to be the people that he's calling us to be. The last one is this, is that purity has purpose because sin separates that when Jesus is our starting point, we see that, that what the Bible is calling us to of living lives within God's design, that this has a, it has a purpose because when we choose to go outside of God's design, when we choose to do things our own way instead of follow his ways, that it ends up separating us from the one we're designed to be connected to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 We've got some other verses there, too, that are great to look up on your own, but I want to narrow in on this one. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, It's God's will that you should be sanctified, which is a word. Do we have 1 Thessalonians 4 in the back? I think I'm skipping a couple. Yeah, there we go. Uh, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, which is just a word that means made holy. A part of what Jesus is doing in our lives is making us holy, which we talked about earlier, is making us like God, that we would love the things he loves, that we would care about the things that he cares about, that we would see the things that he says are destructive as destructive. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be growing and becoming like him, that you should avoid sexual immorality, 
which is a term the Bible uses as an umbrella term for anything out, outside of a relationship between a man and a woman who are married, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. He says, hey, the, the people who don't know God, who don't have a benefit of God in their life, they're running after whatever their heart wants and they're, they're taking it. And you better believe in this culture that he is writing in, it was at least as sexually charged as our culture. There were, there were temples where the, the men of the town could go to and a part of the worship in the temple was to sleep with a prostitute. And so there was sex available constantly everywhere. And we live in a very similar society where there is sex and sexual gratification available everywhere. And he says, if, if we're going to be people who are growing to love what God loves, who see people the way that God made them, not as objects for our fulfillment and our happiness, but as people made in his image, if we see ourselves as supposed to be reflecting what he's like, then we need to have self-control over our body. And to not give in to the, the desires that we have. Because then we can grow in our connection to him. And so on your note sheet, there's a section that says three reminders. We're only going to hit one uh, because time. I don't know. I thought somehow that I was going to be up here for an hour and a half. Um, the first reminder is the one that we're going to hit, which is this. That victory starts with getting our foundation right. Victory starts with getting our foundation right. In a room like this, there's going to be a, a handful of different people. There are going to be some of us who came into this room, uh, and we're like, I, I don't even know about Jesus, and I'm here kind of exploring this and checking this out, and I, I am so glad that you are here. Welcome. The most important thing that you can know is that Jesus loves you and wants you to have a relationship with him. The, the idea of conforming our lives to God's design before we know that we're loved and forgiven, it's, ju it's just not going to work out. And there, there are going to be some of us here who, oh, man, we are passionate on fire for Jesus. And when it comes to this area of sex and sexuality, we look at our world and we're like, man, how can things be so broken and twisted? Look how good God's design is. I want to live out God's design for my life. And I know there's probably a handful of us in here who are feeling like that with this. We're like, okay, like that, that is God's design, that I would be someone who reflects him into this world. And I don't need sex or relationship in order to be who God has designed me to be. But then there's going to be a, a middle category of us. Some of us who, man, we've, we know Jesus and we talk to Jesus and maybe we've been a part of this group for a while or go to a small group. But when it comes to this area, we, we wrestle back and forth. And we have some success in our life and then some, some setbacks. And those setbacks might be, you know, maybe we wrestle back and forth with pornography. Or maybe we have a, a relationship with someone uh, and we're, we know we shouldn't, but we know that it's going to validate them a little bit and we know it, we're also going to get some pleasure out of it and so we're going to request some, some pictures that are l less clothed than they should be. Or maybe we're receiving those requests and we're sending those back. 
And so we wrestle with that. And then later we go to our, our group and we're like, guys, I, I did this thing and I wish I hadn't done this thing and it wasn't a great thing for me to do. Or man, look at the consequences are now ch chasing me because I lived life outside of God's design and now those pictures of me are floating around everywhere and I don't know what I'm gonna do. And so we wrestle back and forth with like, okay, here's what God said, but here's kind of the, the pull and the tug in my life that's pulling me this way or that way. Or maybe we're someone who, who wants to live for Jesus, but we find ourselves attracted to someone of the same gender and we, we wrestle back and forth with, we have some days where we're like, no, I'm gonna live for Jesus. And we have other days where we just, it's deep down, and that's something that we really desire and that we want. If in our lives we're finding that we have little victories, little growth in this area, and then major setbacks, and so let's maybe use the pornography thing as an option, right? We go to, we go to a camp, and we're honest with our cabin, and then a week after we're home, we go on, on a binge for a long time and then a few months later we talk to our life group about it again and then we like stop for a little while and then we're like back at it after a while or we're in a relationship and we're like, okay, I'm gonna, we're gonna put boundaries in place but then we blow past those boundaries and we put the boundaries back in place and we blow past it again and it's constant back and forth. A lot of times what that shows isn't necessarily a lack of desire maybe to obey Jesus. Sometimes what it means is that we haven't realized that we've got the whole story wrong. That we're trying to live the way that Jesus has called us to live, but we see the world the way that the culture around us sees the world. That we're trying to do the actions that Jesus has called us to, but we also still want to live for our own happiness as the ultimate way to live. That we have come to Jesus and we've brought him in as a part of our happiness. And he's one of the voices, but he's not the foundation. And so sometimes what we need to do is take a step back and really ask the question of deep down, what do we believe about how the world works? What do we believe about where our value is? What do we believe about what it means to be human? What do we believe about what it means to, to live a fulfilled life? Do we think that the things that Jesus is calling us to is gonna cut us off from too much of what is good than what he is offering us in a relationship with him? And so as the band comes up, I wanna give you one question to kind of think about this week. When you're looking at your life and when we're considering ourselves and what we really believe in is this. What do you believe leads to the best life? What do you believe leads to the best life? Not what is the answer Tim wants you to have for what the best life is. Not what's the answer that the Bible says for what the best life is. When you look at how you live, what you prioritize, the things that you're really into, what you're chasing after with your life, what your plans are for your life, how you evaluate the end of a week if someone asks how your week went. What do you believe leads to the best life? Because if our answer is happiness, then ultimately we're going to end up seeing that we live a lot like the people around us. And we're going to wrestle with that constantly and maybe not even understand why. 
That is because so often our, what our, what's going to make our heart happy is going to bounce back and forth all the time. And in one moment, it's going to be like, well, it would make my heart happy to feel like God's not mad at me. And then we go to the other side and we're like, oh, it would make my heart happy to have this thing that I probably shouldn't have. And then we bounce back and forth. Right? But the truth is that Jesus already loves you, whether you're in a moment of obedience or a moment of rebellion, he's given it all for you. He loves you and he cares for you and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he wants to use you to show this world what he is like, to use you as one little outpost, one little shining spot, showing people his love and his peace, his grace, his patience, by who he's made you to be. But so often we give up that deep purpose for a moment of happiness and then wrestle with the way that that makes us feel. And we come back to him and ask for forgiveness, but then find ourselves in that same spot later. And many times, it's because we're, we're really deep down living for what makes us feel good in the moment. But the first step often to victory is understanding what story we really believe about what it means to live a good life. Are we believing the story of the world around us? Or have we reoriented to see ourselves defined by Jesus and his love for us? Thank you, Jesus, that you have a plan and a purpose for our life. That each of us, no matter how far we are, no matter the mistakes that we've made, no matter what feels like a, a mountain of sin that stands between us and you, that it was all paid for on the cross. I thank you that your forgiveness is always there for us, that your arms are open wide. And I thank you for this place where we can come and we can be open and honest about who we are, that we can talk about our struggles and our difficulties. We can talk about the things that we feel like stand between us and you. We thank you that you are patient with us, that you're loving uh, for us. And God, that you have picked us up out of the mess that we're in and that you are creating us to be people made in your image, who love what you love, making us holy like you are holy. Would you continue that work in our life and show us where we've absorbed the view around us? And would we choose to reorient our life on you? In Jesus' name, amen.